welcome to The Plant Pod, Grow Your Mind, Feed Your Soul. I'm your host, Carly Bodrug, journalist turned blogger and the girl behind the popular plant-based food blog, Plant You. Today, we're talking all things soy. It's one of the most heavily contested foods in the plant-based space, with many claiming it has estrogenic qualities, causing symptoms like enlarged breast tissue in men, acne, cancer, and you name it. I get asked about soy every single day in my Instagram DMs. Well, today we're setting the record straight. I'm bringing Dr. Matthew Negra on the podcast to interpret the latest research on soy and to answer all of the questions you asked about tofu and soy in general on my Instagram page. Dr. Negra is a naturopathic doctor devoted to bringing the most up-to-date evidence-based nutrition information to his patients at his clinic in Vancouver. In 2018, he graduated with his naturopathic medical degree after completing his Bachelor's of Science in Microbiology at the University of Victoria. He's certified in plant-based nutrition through Cornell University and has written articles for Dr. T. Colin Campbell's Center for Nutrition Studies. He also volunteers for NutritionFacts.org, a science-based public service providing free updates in nutrition research through bite-sized videos. Dr. Negra is known for his social media platforms, where he often tackles misinformation around diet and nutrition and deep dives into the latest nutrition studies. Along with soy, we also delve into other contested foods in the vegan community, including the beloved nutritional yeast, vegan protein powders, and oil. So stay tuned until the end. If you enjoyed this episode and learned a little something, take a screenshot sharing it in your stories and make sure to tag me at PlayU and Dr. Matthew Negra on Instagram so we can share the love. And of course, since this is a new podcast, your five-star reviews and subscribes literally mean the world to me. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Without further ado, Dr. Negra, welcome to The Plant Pod. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I'd love to start by hearing about how, as a physician, you got into plant-based eating and veganism. So I actually started, what, 12, 13 years ago now, kind of lose track at this point. Um, I had a personal trainer when I was about 15 um, who really promoted plant-based diets. He was uh, very much against the consumption of things like dairy and obviously processed meats and that. Uh, he wasn't 100% vegan himself, but definitely plant-forward. And um, one, one day, just after me ignoring his advice for what uh, probably months, years at this point, um, he decided to have me do a food diary, so to record everything that I ate uh, for the period of a couple of weeks. And just having to do that um, kind of scared me a little bit because I didn't want him to see how bad my diet was. And it was pretty poor at the time. Um, so I actually, I sort of cheated the system, I guess. I, I, I didn't cheat on the form but I, I, or on the, on the um, food diary, but I actually just cleaned up my diet um, on the spot there. I cut out all the dairy, all the classic junk foods. I drastically reduced my meat intake, um, ate a lot more uh, fruits, veggies, smoothies, all of that. And I started feeling better. I started losing weight. Uh, my asthma felt better or, or seemed to be better. My uh, allergies seemed to clear up. All these you know, health benefits I was noticing. And, um, and then I decided, you know, maybe he's onto something. Maybe I should stick with it and keep it up. And so I did. And, and for the next couple of years there, I just learned more and more about it until, um, until eventually I went to university where there's a lot of cafeteria food, there's a lot of drinking on the weekends and that kind of thing. And so my health started sliding the other way again. And in my second semester, there was just a, a point where I was 
uh, noticing that I wasn't feeling as good as I was prior and that I wanted to get back to that. And just on the spot is February 2011. I just decided, you know what, I want to go 100% all in. So it's just past 10 years now and I've been 100% plant-based since. Um, and then that eventually drove me to uh, wanting to, to do something in the field of, of you know, nutrition and um, and health. And so that's what drove me to become a naturopathic doctor. So as a physician with a large social media following, I have no doubt in my mind that you probably get asked whether soy is good for you every day, because this is the most common question that I get in my inbox. So let's set the record straight right off the top. Is soy good or is soy bad for you? Um, I would suggest it's probably one of the most health promoting foods. If we're to isolate single foods, one of the most health promoting foods on the planet. Uh, it's one of the, not only should we not be avoiding it, we should be encouraging its consumption. So this might come as a shock to some of our listeners because so often we hear that soy is estrogenic or that it can cause enlarged breast tissue in men, mess with women's hormones. Is there any truth to this? No, so that uh, it comes from a couple of places. So um, there are some rodent studies. Um, actually, before we even get into the, those studies, let's just talk about the phytoestrogens themselves. So these phytoestrogens, these plant estrogens that are found in soy, they have a somewhat similar structure to our own estrogens, and that allows them to bind some of the same receptors, and that can lead to certain activity or um, you know activation in our body. Now, these phytoestrogens are very weak, like on average, about one one thousandth the strength of our own estrogens, the estrogens that we're producing. So these are not um, going to have that same kind of estrogenic or at least powerful response that having actual true estrogen would have. Um, That being said, we also have to note that these phytoestrogens, they preferentially bind to certain receptors in our body. So we have different types of estrogen receptors and they prefer to bind what are known as estrogen receptor beta or for short, short I'll just call them beta receptors. And these beta receptors can have different, act, um, different uh, properties in different parts of the body. So in breast tissue, it may lead to anti-estrogenic effects. So it actually combats an estrogenic effect in breast tissue. So you know, not leading to or promoting breast cancer but actually doing the opposite. And in bone tissue, it can have pro-estrogenic properties, which is a good thing because we want estrogenic um, activity on bone tissue that helps promote bone mineral density. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, women have higher rates of osteoporosis post-menopause is because they lose that estrogenic activity. And so when we understand that and we look at the actual human data on soy consumption, and we look at like breast cancer rates and those who consume the most soy versus those who consume the least, it does reduce breast cancer risk. So it's not actually promoting breast cancer risk. Um, same thing for osteoporosis, as I just mentioned, if anything, soy reduces risk of osteoporosis. And we can go through, and I'm sure we'll get to it, some of the other health benefits as well, but there's just ton there. So where do the risks come from? Or where you know, does this idea of risk come from? It comes largely from rodent studies that are done where they feed them just obscene amounts of these phytoestrogens. And it's not even soy that they're giving in most cases. They're isolating out those phytoestrogens and giving them a really concentrated dose and they run into problems. So there's a couple of problems there. For one, we aren't rats. And you know, second, uh, we don't consume soy in that way, right? Or we don't consume the phytoestrogens in that way. We consume them in whole soy form where you're just not going to get those kinds of doses. Um, on top of that, there are two case studies in men. There was another case study that was recently published where you know, these men were consuming anywhere from, I can't remember if it was 12 to 20 or 14 to 20 servings of soy a day, just absurd amounts of soy, basically a 
a soy predominant diet. And they did run into some problems. Even then we can't say for certain, and the authors make it clear that we can't say for certain that uh, the issues regarded to you know, a small amount of breast growth in one of the men um, and some uh, uh, sexual function issues in uh, the other male. Uh, we can't say for sure they were due to the soy either, but regardless, nobody's recommending that you eat a soy diet, right? We're recommending that, that you include soy, you know, one serving a day, three servings a day, whatever you feel comfortable with in your diet to, to actually get those health benefits. So um, yeah, I don't see any reason to avoid it and really every reason to consume it. If there isn't much truth to this kind of falsehood that soy is estrogenic and causes all of these adverse symptoms in the body, why is it that on a daily basis, I'm sure you hear, and I definitely hear from my following, that their doctor has recommended that they avoid soy? Like, why would that be? I don't know. So I've seen, um, I've seen uh, patients who tell me that their oncologists recommend they avoid soy for their uh, breast cancer. If anything, I'd say that's harmful advice. Not only is that not good advice, that's harmful advice, because we know how beneficial soy can be. Um, now... <laughs> Going back to human studies, something I didn't mention is we have now meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials on soy or isoflavone consumption in both men and women. Uh, the latest one on men was just published in December of 2020. No impact on testosterone or estrogen. Um, if anything, there was a trend towards greater or higher testosterone levels in, in the men with the highest consumption, which is funny because that's counterintuitive. Um, and then, yeah, same thing with women. As far as estrogen, testosterone goes, there's no difference. There might be small differences in um, hormones that don't seem to impact actual health outcomes at all. And so I don't know. I really don't know where this information comes from. But when it comes to nutrition, as far as uh, what I've heard from a lot of my colleagues uh, in the medical profession is that they just don't learn a lot about it. And a lot of the times their nutrition information may actually come from you know, mainstream media and, and those sorts of places. Um, and there was, I think it was last year, I, I posted about it on my page at some point, um, there was a study looking at uh, or surveying medical students. Um, this was in the southern US, I can't remember where, and they were surveying them on like dietary guidelines and, um, you know, what the recommendations are, if they follow them, why they do or do not follow them. And most of them didn't even know simple things like what's the recommended cutoff for sugar intake, what's um, you know, what are these, these really basic things that they should probably know? And that's not a fault on them. It's just the fact that they don't really learn about these things. So uh, when it comes to nutrition, I do hear a lot of misinformation coming out of um, medical profession, which is unfortunate. But then, I mean, you and I know a lot of you know, great doctors in the, in the field who are um, really up on the nutrition research and, and really doing a good job at spreading that as well. So if someone's in the situation where they have a condition, maybe it's something like breast cancer, and their doctor is telling them to avoid soy. As a physician yourself, what do you recommend that that person can say to their doctor if they feel like the information that they're being told to follow is actually not only not correct, but they maybe should be increasing their consumption of soy? Well, so for starters, I, I don't think, I, I think these uh, health professionals absolutely have their patient's interests in mind. They're just misinformed. And so if you're ever presented with that, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask, oh, well, why are you making that recommendation? What data is that based on? Of course, they don't always have the time to go through it. I have long appointments with my patients. I'll actually pull up my folders and I'll go through the, the charts and everything with them and I'll show them the, um, the data there. 
but they don't always have time for that. But just asking that question, why are you recommending that? Where's the evidence for it? Can you even point me towards any guidelines that suggest against soy consumption, which I'm doubtful they can. Um, that'll at least maybe even open up their eyes to the fact that, oh, you know what? I don't know what that's based on. I'm not sure where that data is. And maybe they'll learn something out of it too, but you're always allowed to um, ask for alternatives. You're always allowed to stand up for your own um, health. Like you are the decision maker in your healthcare. All that the health professional is there to do is to um, you know, provide you with the information so you can make an informed choice, right? It's always your choice. So um, that's kind of how I would go about it. For our listeners, is there any sort of specific condition or situation where someone should be avoiding soy? I know endometriosis comes to mind because this is often one of the situations where people get the diagnosis and their doctor tells them to avoid soy. So what about these specific circumstances? You know what? I will actually send to you a really great article written by a friend of mine who's a nutrition science major. Um, he wrote it just, I think, a month or so ago. And it's fantastic. It goes through all of those. And, and endometriosis actually reminded me of that because he went through all the data on that as well. And really, there's no data suggesting that it's, it's harmful. Um, now, for other, uh, like endometrial cancer, for example, there may actually be benefit to soy consumption. For endometriosis, um, it's really up in the air. There doesn't seem to be a benefit or a risk there uh, overall. So Again, no reason to avoid it. I'm not sure why someone would be recommending that other than just speculating on, again, these kind of issues I mentioned earlier. Um, I know, let's say, say we're talking about hypothyroidism. Um, it's not that you need to avoid soy, but you want to make sure you have adequate iodine intake. Um, if you, like soy may interfere with iodine uptake uh, in the thyroid and that can um, cause issues. So the solution there isn't to avoid soy, it's to make sure you get enough iodine. And there's so there are maybe little pieces of nuance like that, but overall, no, I don't really see a reason for someone to avoid soy other than of course, the obvious one, like an allergy, for example. Um, but that can go for any food, right? If you're allergic to nuts, don't eat them either. So uh, we don't need to really focus on that. Is there any possibility that excess soy consumption could lead to acne? Um, not that I'm aware of. No, I haven't seen any, any data to support that either. Just from following your Instagram account, I know that there's constantly new research studies coming out about soy and its impact on the body. Do you think it's such a heavily researched food because of this mass kind of societal confusion? It's not, I don't even think it's because of the confusion. It's because the data is so consistently positive that they're researching it for more and more things. Like in 2020, um, or actually it might've been originally published in 2019, but anyways, in 2020, February, 2020, um, published online, there was an umbrella review. So this was where you look at, um, where you look at multiple meta-analyses. So what they did was they combined, I think it was something ridiculous, like 143 meta-analyses on soy consumption and different health outcomes, looking at 43 different health outcomes. And they put all the data together. And after doing all that, and there's still more that's been released since then, but after doing all that, they found that soy reduced the risk of breast cancer, colorectal cancer, stomach cancer, uh, lung cancer even, endometrial cancer, ovarian cancer, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, improved menopausal symptoms, um, lower blood pressure, lower cholesterol. Uh, it's just on and on and on. Like the, that's not even, that's a fraction of what it actually found. And the only risk they found of everything was that miso soup consumption in particular increased stomach cancer risk. And the reason that miso soup does is because it's so high in sodium, right? It's really salty and high sodium intake can increase stomach cancer risk. Um, so it wasn't even the soy that did it. It was the, the added salt there or the high sodium content uh, that did it. So like we have so much data on millions of people at this point. Um, 
and we don't need any more. We really don't. But of course, for things like, say, endometriosis or these other issues where it's not quite resolved yet, maybe, yeah, we should do some more research there. Maybe there's even benefit, right? We don't know. Um, but for the most part, it's just, it's, there's so much data. You have to, you have to really be cherry picking or just not even look into it to still think that um, soy is harmful. As a doctor, when you have someone come into your office and say, oh, I just started eating soy and now I have tender breasts, or I just started eating soy and I have acne, it must be the tofu. How do you as a doctor acknowledge this person's symptoms while also kind of exploring the root cause that's likely not associated with the soy uptake? Like you never want to gaslight people like that either. So if, if someone's experienced, so for starters with acne, maybe there is some kind of a intolerance or something going on there, who knows? But um, when it comes to individual cases like that, sure, you acknowledge it and you suggest, well, what maybe I'd ask what types of soy, this and that, uh, that they were consuming, may, perhaps try different forms, try edamame instead of the, on the soy mock meat chicken or something, you know, <laughs> maybe try, try something like that. But um, so I, I'd suggest maybe giving another go, but at the same time, their experience is very real. You don't want to downplay that. Um, and there are going to be individual cases like this for anything, right? That's why we don't use anecdotes to make health recommendations. Um, when it comes to public health recommendations, things that are going to improve the lives of the vast majority of people, we want to be making recommendations based on things like that umbrella review I just mentioned. Right? We want to look at the overall balance of data because you can't control confounding. There's so many issues there uh, when you're looking at an individual. For example, there's the nocebo effect. And what the no that's the opposite of the placebo effect, for those who don't know. And so what the nocebo effect can do is if you think something's going to harm you, you're more likely to experience that harm. So if you've read your whole life that soy causes acne, causes digestion issues, causes whatever, you're more likely to experience that and then attribute it to the food, but it could just be in your head. And we see this with certain types of medications like statin medications uh, compared to placebo. They actually don't um, seem to cause much in the way of side effects, but so many people experience side effects from them because they think they will. Um, and we can, we can go on and on. I, I think actually that's a big issue with, uh, with this kind of ex vegan trend we see sometimes is like these people are probably told forever day in and day out that they're going to become weak, that they're going to, lose their hair, lose their periods, whatever it might be. Um, and they're more likely to experience negative impact there as well. And then, and then they magically, you know, they have one piece of fish and magically everything's healed. Nothing works that fast. I don't care what you're doing. Nothing, especially dietarily is going to work that fast. So um, this nocebo effect, I think is really important for us to, to keep in mind. So if people are listening and they're like, okay, I'm on the soy train. I want to start integrating this really healthy food into my diet. Is there some soy that is better than others? Like, should we be looking at edamame rather than tofu or tempeh rather than tofu? So that's a good question because when we look at individual soy products, some of the foods with the most positive data are actually tofu and soy milk, which are both mildly processed. And the reason is probably because they've been studied the most, because they are the most consumed. I wouldn't necessarily say because they're better than others, although that may be the case. Um, if we want to get into, I guess, hypotheticals, maybe something like edamame or tempeh because they're more whole soy products, you got more fiber there, um, possibly uh, somewhat higher mineral content and that. Maybe there's benefit to going that way. Uh, we can certainly say with some of the mock meat products, especially if they have added coconut oil or, or you know, higher saturated fat oils, um, that they can have a negative impact or less of a beneficial impact with regard to cardiovascular disease, sure. But for the most part, I think just consuming soy in either its whole or minimally processed form like tofu or 
soy milk are probably the best ways to go or even soy yogurts actually which I've tried recently and, and quite liked is it okay to eat those multiple times a day say like a soy milk smoothie and then you have a uh, tofu for dinner um yeah I see no honestly myself I eat uh, I have soy milk in my smoothies and I eat probably on most days a whole block of tofu so um, yeah definitely don't see a problem there I find even myself when I've had like tofu maybe multiple times a day or in a week, I even get like a little nervous myself because there's such a weird stigma around it. I joked with a friend of mine the other day um, because I don't normally do this, but uh, my mom was uh, visiting and, and she'd made this like tofu scramble for breakfast. So I had that. And then I had um, I had a, a bowl, like a Buddha bowl type thing with tofu and edamame in it for lunch. And then I had a stir fry with soy curls for dinner. <laughs> it was just like soy after soy. So I don't normally do that. But anyways, um, I still not worried about it at all. There's no reason to worry. But uh, I just thought that was funny. One thing I always like to note when someone is sharing their concerns about soy with me is that in Asian countries, this is a food that has been eaten almost daily for centuries. And that's where some of the longest life expectancies are. So if soy was such like this poisonous food with all of these adverse symptoms, you would think it would be the opposite. Yeah. And the really funny thing about that comparison actually is it's in the Asian countries where not only is there no harm, there's benefit. That's where we see benefit because they consume soy so regularly, right? You're comparing in Asian cultures or Asian populations, you're comparing maybe a couple servings a week to like two or three servings a day for soy normally. And you see that those higher intakes lead to benefit. In America or in North America, you don't see a benefit with soy consumption a lot of the times, but that's not because of different types of soy, which a lot of people like to write it off as or whatever. What's actually the case is you're comparing like a serving a week versus a serving a month in America, right? You're, 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 you're comparing so little to even less. And in that case, you're not going to notice benefit. You need to actually consume the food to, to accrue some sort of benefit, which is what we see in those Asian populations. And should we be seeking out GMO free soy? Um, so actually for starters, um, before I even get into that, I would say that good luck finding GMO soy products um, as far as whole or, or minimally processed soy products. You just can't. Uh, that's because we look at you know, three quarters of the soy being produced is for uh, animal agriculture. Uh, we've got another portion of the soy for, uh, you know, biofuels and for, um, for like soybean oils and that kind of thing. And then only about six or 7% of the soy that's produced is actually directly for human consumption. So that would be your tofu, your edamame, your soy milk and that. So um, we save the good stuff for us. Uh, so we don't, we, you aren't going to be getting much of that. Now, um, whether or not there's a risk there, I'm not convinced there is a risk anyway, but I mean, it's really a moot point when you consider the fact that you're not going to be eating that anyway. I hear a lot of people always like trolls telling me, oh, your soy is worse for the environment ah. than beef. And that always makes me laugh because it's, you're right. It's like 80% of the soy goes to feed the crops and the, and the oil. Do you know much about that environmental yeah. perspective? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, depending on the stat that you look at, it's like 75, 77%, something like that for livestock. Um, so if you want to save the environment, you got to stop eating animals that are eating all the soy, right? That's why we're growing it up. And, and you have to think about it. You're feeding these crops to, um, to these animals for their whole life. So it's not like one serving of soy in, one serving of meat out. No, it's a lifetime or for them, their lives are, lives are unfortunately very short because of what we do to them. But uh, it's, you know, a year and a half, two years of, of the soy and, and other feed um, to feed them up to a, a, you know, a 
full-size uh, animal that we're going to end up eating. So it's not really um, a fair comparison like that. So when you're actually looking at how much soy they eat in order to get to the size that we slaughter them at, um, it's a lot. It's a lot more than us uh, humans are going to be eating. Which is funny because if you think about it, the meat eaters are often perpetuating these myths about soy, but they're getting it anyways because this is what's being fed to the animals that they're eating. So it's just so bizarre. Yeah, although we don't feed um, as much, I, I believe, to to um, cattle and that too. I think a large chunk of it gets uh, fed to a lot of the, the poultry. Uh, I can't remember okay. exact numbers and that, but um, anyways, and we have even more of them. So it's like, it's a lot that we're, we're feeding to these animals for sure. I don't think there's a heck of a lot more to say on the subject of soy. I do want to ask you about a few other vegan products that are really contested. But if someone is wanting to look at the studies that you're referencing within this podcast and learn more about soy, where can they find that info from you? So yeah, my, my page at uh, Dr. Matthew Nagra, so dr.matthewnagra, I got uh, my post there. I reference everything in the comments uh, of the post because I don't quite have room to fit it into the post itself most of the time. Um, so they're all there. You can always find them that way. Um, otherwise, actually, I'll just plug something really quick. Um, Plant Proof's new book. I don't know if you've heard about it. The proof yes. Is the, yeah, the proof is in the plant. So I got to be one of the kind of scientific reviewers, you know, edit edit some of the information in that throughout. So um, I can say I'm pretty confident in the information there. I think he does a really good job uh, looking at things in like an un unbiased manner and, and that. So um, that will have all the references uh, online, I believe. I, I don't know if that's all sorted out yet, but, uh, but you'll be able to just plug in the number online and the reference will come up. Um, so that'll be another good way to, to find a lot of that. Uh, Nutrition Made Simple on YouTube is really good. Uh, he's a medical doctor and PhD, and I've recently really gotten into his stuff. I think he does an excellent job just boiling things down um, so that, you know, the average person without this background can understand it. And uh, so that'd be another good place to start. Amazing. So there are a few more vegan products that I want to debunk some myths around while we've got the opportunity. And one of those is nutritional yeast. I hear a lot that it mimics MSG. But from my understanding, MSG itself, there's not, if any, research to support that it actually has adverse effects in the body. So for starters, nutritional yeast is very nutritious, like incredibly nutritious. Uh, if, if, if fortified, especially uh, very high in B vitamins, uh, it's actually a source of B12 in a plant-based diet. Um, they've got a fair amount of protein. It's actually quite high in protein as well. So it's a, it's a good, you know, nutritious food overall. As far as the concerns, you nailed it. Um, there's really no evidence suggesting that MSG is harmful. It's just speculation. And again, we don't use speculation to make public health recommendations. We look at actual human data. And thus far, I'm not aware of any suggesting that nutritional yeast is harmful. And is nutritional yeast, does it mimic MSG? Um, I know, it's got some of the same components. I, I, don't, I don't even think that question matters, to be honest, <laughs> given the, the fact right. that there, there isn't data suggesting even MSG is that harmful in humans. So um, it has some same components that people can uh, kind of extrapolate as they feel, I guess. But uh, no, I wouldn't be worried about it. The other one is vegan protein powders, seemingly processed, and it's something that's asked about daily, at least in my community. And I'm curious your take on daily use of a vegan protein powder. Yeah, actually, I would suggest that it's um, if you're so if you're 
an athlete um, and you're not hitting uh, your protein targets through food alone, um, it's a great thing to add in to make sure you do that. I think even for um, aging populations, it's not a bad idea to add some protein powder just to make sure because we know that maintaining lean mass as we age and and um, protein absorption decreases as we age, that, that can be a really good thing as well for just overall health. Um, protein intake is plant protein intake, I should say, because um, if you're getting it from animal foods, it comes packaged with a lot of garbage that you don't want, like the saturated fat, cholesterol and that. But uh, like a powder, a uh, protein powder, especially a plant-based one, um, can be just a great thing for overall health outcomes too. So um, yeah, protein intake overall is, is uh, something that I think I see more and more lately. I've, I've considered that we need to, to um, look at. But uh, for, the mo for most people, you're going to be getting enough through your diet. There just might be benefit to adding something like that in. And there's certainly no harm. I see, I see zero harm in that. Do you have a favorite vegan protein powder that you can refer people to? Because you see so many different blends and coming from all different places. Yeah. So um, there have been a lot of studies comparing different plant protein sources to whey, whether it's rice, pea, or soy protein. There's no difference in actual health outcomes. Uh, we know that like soy protein powder can lower cholesterol, for example, other plant protein powders may actually as well, um, to, to one degree or another. So I don't know that I'd recommend one type over the other. However, if we're looking at actually building mass and you want something with a really good amino acid profile, um, then I like iron vegan sprouted protein. I've looked at their, uh, pro uh, their, um, amino acid profile there and like their leucine content, which is important for building muscle is very high. Um, it's just got overall a pretty good profile there. Do you think you can build muscle on a plant-based diet the same way you can if you're eating animal products? Oh, I don't just think that. I know that at this point. We have data. <laughs> um, we, we, this year, February, I think it was the 17th, 18th, something like that of February, uh, they, they really should have put it to rest, although people want to still argue. Um, they took uh, actual vegans, actual omnivores, had them eat the same amount of protein, both groups supplemented to hit their 1.6 grams per kilogram mark. Um, so the vegan supplemented with soy protein, the meat eater supplemented with the, the whey protein. And there was no difference in any strength or size outcome uh, as far as gains or anything. Um, and this just backs up all the other data we have on like pea versus whey, soy versus whey, rice versus whey. It's identical across the board. There's no evidence suggesting that when it comes to actual strength or muscle gains, that there's any difference whatsoever. So um, yeah, I think we can, I hope we can put it to rest, but uh, they'll never let it die. And I guess this all kind of ties into the conversation and I'm sure you experienced this as well, but there's a bit of like a purist culture in this like plant-based community, which seems to um, throw away the idea of integrating any of these kind of processed foods into our diets, like a protein powder, like a nutritional yeast. Do you have kind of a stance on this, whether it's healthy or not? No. So there's, we don't need to be like, as a general rule, I think we can say that for the most part, choosing unprocessed or even minimally processed foods is the best. Um, but some of these processed foods can absolutely be healthy. Vinegar, it's very health promoting, uh, possibly with uh, um, cholesterol, with weight management, with uh, blood sugar management. It's just a, a good thing to have. And it's processed. Uh, nutritional yeast, you already mentioned, very nutritious. It's processed. Soy milk and tofu, again, super healthy, processed. Um, so there are absolutely health promoting processed foods out there. So we don't need to become um, 
purists about this and, and that just it makes it too difficult for people too if we look at the seventh day adventist population for example they're one of the healthiest populations in the world a huge portion of, or proportion of vegans and guess what they eat mock meats here or there too they're known for that and and yet they're super super healthy so no we don't need to worry about that too much um you know we just we don't have data to support it and taking the environmental and animal welfare conversation out of it what is the ideal healthiest diet is it eating plant-based with a fish once a week or meat once a week what does that look like so that's a good question so what we know absolutely is that diet centered on fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds, healthiest way to live. You can include certainly like low fat dairy and seafood uh, without uh, harming your health at all. However, on top of that, that plant-based diet I already mentioned, I'm not convinced of any added benefit there. So that, that's a take it or leave it. Of course, that's where the ethical uh, environmental um, arguments come in. Um, as far as red meats, maybe a serving or two of lean red meats a week at most uh, might be included in that. Uh, same would go for, for poultry. Um, but we know that the basis of that diet should be whole plant foods, um, the incorporation of small amounts of animal products, not going to really hinder you one way or the other if you're eating you know, 85 plus percent or so of your diet from plants. Um, but certain plant foods are certainly better than others, like I mentioned, the low-fat dairy and the seafood. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of where the science would stand. But then I don't think we should remove environmental and ethical considerations from our food choices. Oh, either, yeah. Right? I don't think we should do that. I think we should absolutely consider that, um, especially the environment, you know, with generations to come. So, uh, and actually, I just saw Seaspiracy yesterday, so that was good, too. Um, so that's just more to consider. I haven't watched it yet. I'm honestly scared. Like, I'm just scared of the, you know, after those documentaries, you're just like, oh, was it kind of like that? Um, it was, I mean, it's definitely sad to see some stuff. I would say for the most part, it's more, it's, it makes you more sad, I'd say about human treatment in a lot of cases in the industry, um, more so than even, um, than even the animal treatment because we already know that right we all we all i should hope know about that um but yeah it definitely opened my eyes to a few things some of the interviews that they did with some of the leaders of these organizations too were pretty cringy like you watch it and you're like they can't answer the question and they're dodging they tell you to turn the cameras off that kind of thing which is always fun i mean that's in cowspiracy as well you saw that um but it, i like i learned and, and i've actually spoken with people who are very up uh, to date on a lot of the environmental science and they said it was pretty spot on um, with the environmental stuff. So that's really good to know. Um, because uh, while I'm, I'm somewhat knowledgeable about that, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm certainly not the expert. So uh, it was good to hear that as well, because sometimes you don't know if they're exaggerating claims or whatever. But um, anyways, yeah, yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. I think uh, hopefully won't won't uh, crush your soul too much. The last one I want to touch on is oil, because in the plant-based community from the beginning, I heard that you got to cut the oil out of your diet. And um kind of this low-fat, plant-based message. And I've heard a lot of conflicting things in probably like the last year. And I know people like yourself have spoken out about this. So could you share your stance on including oil or not including oil in your plant-based diet? So it depends on the oil. So definitely coconut oil or palm oil are going to raise um, cardiovascular risk because they're high in saturated fat, just like something like butter or ghee would be. Um, but when it comes to olive oil, especially extra virgin olive oil, I mean, it's just consistently, again, associated with better health outcomes. Um, we can also say that a lot of the seed oils, um, like cold pressed canola oil and that, 
also associated with good health outcomes. Um, so there's this kind of attack on a lot of the oils, even, I mean, the one thing that every diet group is against for some reason are the seed oils, like the canola, sunflower, and so on. Um, but they're some of the healthiest ones. So um, there is reason, at least as far as um, speculation, I guess, to think that certain types might be better than others. But overall, I, I don't think it matters too much. I think they're, they're perfectly fine to consume in modest amounts. However, we should note that um, they're very calorically dense and don't contain a ton of nutrition. So um, for someone, if weight management is a concern, we definitely don't want to be including a ton of oils there because that's like 120 calories per tablespoon of stuff that's not going to fill you up. So, you know, if you're eating, um, if you're eating 120 calories of sunflower seeds versus 120 calories of, uh, of sunflower oil, um, the seeds are going to fill you up more than the oil. So um, that's the one consideration to have there. And, and uh, outside of that, yeah, I don't see much, much concern. So I make most of my food oil free. Is there a reason to be including the oils in our diet? Like, should I be going out of my way to use a bit of oil in my food? I mean, uh, like, especially for things like extra virgin olive oil and, and that that I mentioned um, associated with good health outcomes, I certainly don't uh, think is there's any reason not to. But for people who are having troubles maintaining weight on a plant-based diet. So, um, so like as an athlete, I myself, I have to eat a lot. Now I do eat enough calories without adding oils in, but some people might not want to eat as much as I do. Um, and that can just bump up your caloric intake a little bit uh, so you can maintain your weight that way. So that's one consideration. Another thing is for a growing child, it might actually be a good idea to include a little bit of oil there just to bump up their caloric intake, make sure that they're getting enough that way so you can promote growth. Um, there are, there are some situations like that where I think it could even be a good idea. Um, but generally I think it's something that you can take it or leave it. Um, I don't know that there's going to be benefit to including that over other health promoting foods. Of course, it matters what you're replacing. If you're replacing butter with olive oil, of course it's going to be beneficial. Right. Um, so that's kind of my stance on it. It's pretty neutral. I would say. Where did all this confusion stem about oil? I know some of the like the plant-based kind of founding fathers, Dr. Campbell and Esselstein, all kind of perpetuated that we should be avoiding oil where we can. So is that kind of where it stems from? Yeah, it came from, um, well, there's one or two studies that are always referenced. So I'm assuming that's where it came from. Um, it came from studies looking at what happens when you consume a large amount of oil. Um, I think they use like refined olive oil in one of them. Um, and, uh, and your artery function. So they measured the ability of arteries to dilate after a meal. And uh, they found that the oil impaired that. Now, sure, that sounds bad, but actually post-meal um, endothelial dysfunction or postprandial, they call it, but just for, you know, <laughs> for those listening, uh, post-meal um, issues with artery function like that haven't been shown to actually translate into cardiovascular events. So haven't been shown to actually cause heart disease Whereas if you at baseline, like before a meal, you know, first thing in the morning, your arteries are already crippled, that's a problem. Uh, but oil isn't causing that. So, um, so that's kind of where it comes from largely. Finally, let's talk about B12. Why is it that vegans need to supplement B12 in the first place? Yeah, because um, so B12, it's uh, produced in some animals, um, uh, in the guts of like ruminant animals, for example. And so we can get it through animal consumption. Now, we can, um, we can also get it through fortified food consumption. Of course, that's added to plant foods like your plant-based uh, milks, your uh, mock meats, and that typically have some nutritional yeast we already mentioned. But the issue is because of the way our absorption with B12 works, you have to be consuming um, you know, a decent dose of B12 
basically three times a day in order to actually absorb enough because you only absorb a certain amount or a certain percentage. Now, what we can do alternatively is we can take a supplement that's a very high dose that essentially overloads your absorption capacity. So you end up getting enough. For example, we want to hit 2.4 micrograms a day, which would be three doses of 0.8 micrograms. But you would dose, uh, depending on who you talk to, up to like 250 micrograms a day. Right? So you're getting like a, a hundredth um, of that actually absorbed. Um, now you can also do a once weekly dose, which is even way, way higher at like 2,500 micrograms. So that's why a supplement's important is because unless you're eating those fortified foods and having a decent dose of them multiple times throughout the day, every single day, it's just a safe bet to just take a supplement. It's super easy. It's one of the cheapest supplements out there too. Um, and you can, like I said, depending on dose, you can even do it just once a week. So um, that's why we recommend it. Are meat eaters excluded from this? Like, should they be supplementing B12 as well? And if not, why is that? Yeah, so um, it it kind of depends. There is some data suggesting that a, a large proportion have low normal to, to deficient levels as well. Um, but it becomes a bigger concern as we age. So depending on who you or who, which organization you look at, the Institute of Medicine, for example, recommends everybody supplement after age 50. Um, you know, other organizations might recommend above age 65. Regardless, once you hit, hit those older ages, it's important to supplement because you absorb even less. Your stomach acid production uh, reduces and, and that's an issue for absorption. So, um, so yes, meat eaters should be supplementing as well at those later years. In the earlier years, if you're having um, animal products or again, fortified foods three times a day, um, at a decent dose. And yeah, you can probably do without, but, uh, but that's, you know, if someone's even plant forward thinking, you know, having maybe uh, meat or something once a, once a day at most, um, they might want to consider supplementing as well. Are there any other supplements you recommend for vegans? Um, it depends. I know we're in Canada, so I like vitamin D uh, just cause we don't get a lot of sun exposure. You need to be exposed to sun and not even just sun, but summertime sun really here um, to, to produce much vitamin D. Um, and Health Canada recommends that everybody supplement through the winter time. Uh, Osteoporosis Canada recommends that everybody supplement year round. I tend to lean more with them. I think year round supplementation is a good idea uh, just to make sure you're getting enough. Uh, because again, why not be cautious in that case? Um, and then outside of that, the other one that might be pertinent depending on what you eat is an iodine supplement. So we're not really too sure about the risks in vegans as far as actual symptomatic deficiency, but um, you don't get much iodine in your diet unless you're eating iodized salt or a lot of sea vegetables. Um, so that'd be like your nori, dulse, wakame on a regular mm -hmm. basis. And so if you're not doing that, you might want to consider an iodine supplement or you might want to consider switching to iodized salt just to make sure you get a little bit of iodine in your diet. Of course, you don't want to be uh, pounding the salt. So you want to still keep it pretty minimal. Um, and then there's a lot of controversy around omega-3 supplements. I'm not convinced that they're beneficial outside of, um, outside of people with cardiovascular disease or people with mild cognitive impairment or possibly in pregnant women. Um, so maybe in those cases, a good idea to supplement, but for the average healthy person, if you're eating a lot of plant-based omega-3s, like your flax, your chia, your walnuts, uh, even soy is a decent source, um, then I'm not convinced it's super necessary. Okay, this is super interesting because after my podcast with Team Shirzai, I think last week, I went and picked up an omega-3 for me and my parents because I'm like, oh, got to protect the brain. So which is it here? And is there a risk to supplementing it? 
So I've, I've spoken with them about this. Actually, I did an ID Live. We talked about it on there too. Um, and so they, I think they used to be much more in the camp that everyone should supplement. Now they've backtracked on that. And they're more, um, and don't, uh, maybe I'm misquoting them. So I don't want anyone to think that's 100% fact, but I think they've, they've, uh, they've kind of backtracked from that position and they're more in the camp, like I mentioned, where if you're eating a lot of plant-based omega-3s, you're not either um, you know, pregnant or growing child, or you're not, uh, you're not someone dealing with cognitive impairment and so on. Um, that there's probably not benefit there. So, so that's, uh, I think a pretty, uh, similar stance to my own, um, right. as far as risks. So there is, especially with high dose, but these are like pharmaceutical dose we're talking about. Um, there seems to be an atrial fibrillation, which is a, a heartbeat irregularity, um, possibly a risk there. There might be, um, I can't recall what the other ones. Oh, there might be even a, a slightly increased risk of type two diabetes because of um, there's Mendelian studies. So these are studies where they look at people with genetically different levels and those with genetically higher levels of EPA and DHA might be at increased risk of type two diabetes as well. So, I mean, that's always a concern. And, um, but again, it all would come down to the doses you're taking. I think generally it's a pretty safe uh, supplement to take just a standard if you're taking down to 250 milligrams of DHA or something. Um, but with everything, I mean, there's going to be some level of risk there. You just got to weigh the risks and the benefits. You touched on ex-vegans for a minute earlier, and I'm wondering your perspective on why there is so many people who go vegan and then go back to eating animal products and say that they feel better when they're integrating these animal products into their diet. Um, it could be that. It could be that they were eating overall poor diet. A lot of the times I've seen that um, there are uh, individuals who come into a vegan lifestyle with health issues, thinking that the vegan diet's going to cure their issues, and it doesn't, and then they and decide to go back, that's another issue. Um, uh, there's actually a study that a lot of the, um, you know, anti-vegans will call them, like to, to uh, point at called the phonolytic study where they looked at um, vegans and vegetarians and how there's a poor retention rate. But the thing was that um, these were people who were primarily or at least largely driven by health, right? We have to remember that veganism is about ethics. And so um, if they're coming to it for health, they might be yo-yo dieters. They might be people who just hop on different trend, diet trends, try a little bit of everything. And of course, it's not going to last in that case. Um, we have another study that just came out, which I'm planning to post about soon. I haven't yet. Um, came out a few months ago, looking at motivations for adhering to a diet. And they looked at a vegan diet, vegetarian diet, gluten-free. Um, I can't remember if keto was in there. It might have been. And, oh, no, paleo. It was paleo. And there was a weight loss diet. And they looked at motivations and the vegans, vegetarians, obviously more motivated by ethics and, and that. Um, and they found, and they had a, they had more of kind of an identity uh, related to their diet, of course. And they found that they had the least trouble adhering to their diet, like no barriers basically to, to adherence. And that's because they knew why they were doing it. They were driven by something um, stronger than just, you know, their health uh, or how they're feeling in a moment. Whereas um, with things like the weight loss diet have very poor adherence, uh, because there's, um, you know, if you're not getting the results right away, you're going to want to fall off. And there's all sorts of other factors there, but, uh, I can't remember all the little details, but I will write about that soon. Um, I think, and, and put a post out there. Amazing. To wrap it up, I would love to hear what you eat in a day as a plant-based doctor. Uh, yeah. So I have, um, it depends. My breakfast can change today. I had oatmeal. Um, which was steel cut oats, berries, uh, banana, flax, cinnamon. Um, I put some amla powder in there. Uh, I think that was it. And then um, sometimes I'll do a smoothie. Sometimes I'll do tofu scramble, but that's not super often. 
Uh, and then for lunch, um, I haven't actually had lunch yet, but I will, I don't know what I'm going to have on, uh, you know, a lot of days I'll do even a sandwich, whole wheat toast, tofu, Dijon mustard, tomatoes, kale, avocado, hot sauce. Um, it's pretty easy. I'll throw some spice. I'll, I'll like, I'll kind of pan fry the tofu with some spices and things. Um, so that's something I do a lot. Sometimes I'll do a smoothie again. I'll throw greens in, um, a bunch of fruit. Again, banana always to help sweeten it, dates, uh, soy milk. And then for dinner, dinner's the one that changes a lot lately. Um, I never get sick of it. Lately, I've been doing pasta a lot. So I'll do like a legume pasta. So lentil pasta or chickpea pasta um, with tomato sauce. I'll blend up some cashews with water to add like a cream. Um, so I make it a little bit tomato creamy, I guess. Um, and then I'll throw in a bunch of spices. I'll chop up just whatever vegetables I've got. Um, uh, broccoli, kale, uh, peppers, throw it in there. And then I will, um, I'm got some like frozen peas, something I'll throw that in as well. So it's a pretty heavy legume, uh, dinner, I guess. But yeah, those are just a, that's kind of a day, I guess. Um, sometimes dinner can be, I don't know, whatever. It can be a stir fry, it can be a bootable, it can be all sorts. Do you ever have like a Beyond Burger? Um, I've only had, I think two in my life or something like that. And it's pretty rare. I don't, um, when did I, I can't even think of when I had one last. Um, I think when, so my favorite restaurant in town, meat, meat on main or meat in Gastown, meat in Yelltown. There's like three different ones. It's called meat funny enough. M E E T. And it's all vegan. Um, when they first got the beyond burger in, I wanted to try it. I know like A&W had the beyond burger and all that. I just didn't care for having that version of it. But, uh, when meat had theirs, I thought, you know, their food's really good. They're probably doing something good with it. So I had that had one some other place I can't remember where and then I've had the impossible burger um I think twice as well I had one when I was in like New Orleans I, I found a, a vegan place there and they had one so I thought I'd try it. I had one in Vegas actually that was the other one so um I've never had one locally um I don't know it's a occasional indulgence I guess it's not something I care to have all that often I really enjoy what I eat so I don't really feel the need to go for that and um, and there are some even uh, maybe not quite as meat like as those foods, but um, there are some other healthier like black bean burgers and that kind of thing, too. If I really wanted something, I could go for that. Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Negra. This has been so educational. I loved it. It was like a whole vegan myth busting episode. And I hope that we can do it again with some more <laughs> contested foods in the future. It was an absolute pleasure. Sounds good. I look forward to doing it again. And uh, next time you said we can get some video and everything, too. <laughs> well folks that is it if you're anything like me you're going to be cooking up something with tofu for dinner so i've got a ton of free tofu recipes on my page at plant you on instagram as well as my website at plantyou.com. i'll put a link to some of the research articles dr nager referenced in the podcast in the show notes thank you so much for listening and i will see you next week